0: and the world of your dreams my guest on today's episode of mike's search for meaning is liangela ingram you can connect with LeAngela at her website consult her linkedin page which is LeAngela ingram her name and additionally i always donate to and raise awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice and LeAngela has selected the organization house of ruth all of these are linked in the show notes please join me in donating to House of Ruth. This conversation covers several topics of interest to me, and LeAngelo's work covers the same topics of interest. One of them is the ability to pivot. There's a lot in our space in leadership development, in goal setting about having a five-year or 10-year plan and thinking long term. And I actually think if not just as important, maybe even more important is having the ability to say that's my plan. And that's the vision, my North Star even, but life is going to throw me a million and one curveballs and things aren't going to go according to plan. So as leaders or people who are showing up with any level of intention in our lives, it is such an incredibly valuable skill to be able to pivot and sense when things aren't working and need to shift Leangelo does some work in what I would characterize as bureaucratic organizations governmental organizations and so she has a really interesting lens around change because in bureaucratic organizations a lot of times change is not welcome it is resisted in big ways so this was a really interesting area of exploration as well and we spend a lot of time speaking about what creates strong culture a lot of organizations, And even individuals espouse certain values and things that they stand for. It's one thing to say them. It's a totally different thing to embody them. So LiAngela has a lot of really valuable things to say about all of these really important topics that impact us individually and collectively as a society. LiAngela is a seeker, a consummate professional and student of human behavior. I really enjoyed picking her brain in this conversation. I think you are going to enjoy it, too. And with all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this conversation with LeAngela Ingram. LeAngela, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning.
1: Thank you, good afternoon. And it's a pleasure to be here with you, Mike, to really delve into our, our topics. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: They're, they're all really juicy ones, and I'm really looking forward To getting into it with you. And I think it's important to understand like, one of the things we have teed up is systems thinking. And our family of origin is certainly one of the systems that influences the way that we show up in our lives and what matters to us, what we're influenced by. And so, this is the question I always start my interviews with. I think it's a really neat one to understand what informs the way that Leangelo was brought up. And and my question is, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up?
1: Wow. So there's a lot in that. So I think primarily conversation, and I've always been an over-the-top extrovert. And so the conversations at the table sometimes revolved around the fact that I was offered money to shut up, right? <laughs> and so because I would dominate conversations at the dinner table. My mother, who was the lead of the, the, the whole kind of initiation, like, I will pay you not to talk. And I would say things like, okay, right after I say this. So suffice it to say, I never was rewarded because I had fallen and I couldn't shut up. So that was one of the things. And so the I think one of the other pieces that is really integral to how it is that we grew up and the, the dinner table types of conversations is that we grew up in a very tight knit community. So my dad hasn't been a career war veteran. And so there were a lot of military families in our community. And so catching up on what was happening next door on either side was always a part of what was happening at the dinner table. So much so that my mom and our next door neighbor, Miss Christine, would like exchange sugars and recipes and we went in and out of each other's homes, doors open and the like to get things for dinner. If we didn't have something, then we could go next door to Miss Christine's and Miss Christine would come to our house for whatever it is that she was lacking in preparation for for dinner. So that's just a nutshell of the kinds of things that um, happened around our dinner table.
0: Well, I, I love both of those things. That's what a unique answer. I was actually offered money to not talk at my dinner table. So I'm such a raging extrovert. I love that. And uh, And the sense of community is that's a beautiful one that that seems very rare in America and and you're a Washingtonian through and through, is that right? I
1: am. And so I think a lot of the transient folks don't really, understand and explore that as Washington seems to be like this big city because we, you know, the White House is here. But actually, we're Southern folks. We are below the Macy Dixon line. And of course, a lot of the African-Americans migrated north to D.C. And so we do have this strong sense of, of community, so much so that where I grew up, all of the families knew each other and all of the kids would get together to play. And there was dinner time and everybody knew what time each family had to leave to go for dinner. And so it's it's not, or it wasn't for us or for me, um, growing up in DC, this far-fetched notion of a, a sense of very strong community, even to like our school systems. I mean, we walked to school, all of us. And parents knew the teachers, right? And so plug for Roberta Flack, who was my music teacher. And so we had a very strong sense of community in, in my neighborhood.
0: Mm-hmm. So how much would you say that your upbringing, especially as it pertains to the, the sense of community that seemed to be ingrained from you from a very young age, how much would you say that informs the way that you look at the organizational work that you do now? And I think what I'm getting at is you seem to have a really, in my preparation for this conversation, you, have a, you seem to have a really good ability to understand different people and different systems and the ways that all these things uh, come together to create what we might call a culture or a way of doing business or, you know, and any number of different things that we might use to describe it. So how much would you say your upbringing shaped the way that you're able to bring these types of gifts into the work that you do? with various types of organizations?
1: So I would say it really informed the work that I do at at multiple levels, right? And so even though it's tongue in cheek about how I was paid to be quiet, one of the things that was instilled in me is that you gotta listen, right? And so this notion of having the capacity to listen to folks in systems is really an integral part of my being very successful because I can listen not only about what's being said, what's not being said. And I think as an African-American, the other piece is that I have to listen to a lot of the body languages and understanding the, the context, if you will, of what it is that people are saying and not saying, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, when I do some of my leadership training, there are certain looks that African-Americans can give to one another, and we know exactly what it means, right? And so that sense of community and context, without even words, we understand and know what's really being communicated. And then it's usually offline that a person will say something to me about a comment or a reaction to something that may have been said within our learning community. And so I think creating that container and the safe space is one of my natural gifts around how it is I create and communicate in a way that certain affinity groups feel comfortable, right? Being their authentic selves, whether it's, they talk to me offline and I might say something to them like, would you mind asking that in the full group, right? And so creating that, that safety space for a learning community to be developed. And I would say to you, this notion of listening what express purpose of understanding versus seeking to be understood, stolen from Stephen Covey. That's one of my favorites, right?
0: Yeah. Okay. So one of the things you're describing is there's a lot of things that we are saying without the words that we are saying, right? And, and so, so like understanding that, I, I guess one, one of the things I'm curious about here is what are uh some cultural norms or other things that you look for in in different types of populations or i know that you your work expands pretty globally right so what are like how have you acclimated yourself with all of the various ways that we might communicate with each other because it seems to me like we focus so much on the words that are being spoken and don't take enough time to understand what else goes into how we are speaking to each other
1: yeah. I would say one of the primary things, particularly having done quite a bit of work internationally, is to suspend judgment. Because I think as Westerners, we are so clear that we're right about almost everything, right? And so moving into the work that I do, I suspend judgment and try to, I seek to listen, to learn around why and how did you, how did this come to be, right? And can you give me an example of why this is so important, right? And so understanding to your first question around the cultural norms and mores around food and gatherings, right? And noting how it's very symbolic. So one of my best friends is Nigerian. And so I went to an event and of course it was very long and I was exhausted and they hadn't gotten to the food yet. And so I was like, girl, I'm just tired. I want to go. And then as we were walking to the car, she was like, you know, that's considered rude. And so we turned around and went back. I said, because that's not what it is that I want to do, right? So really trying to understand culturally what's acceptable, what it is that I do know and what it is that I'm open to learn, right? Because I think that sometimes in our humanity, right, we're so focused on what's important to us to the exclusion of others. Mm-hmm. And so really figuring out a ways in which I can be in the world that I'm always a student. And if in the moment I learn something is amiss, then I can get my ego out of the way and correct it a- in the moment and understanding that cultural nuances are just that very nuance and being willing to pivot and to understand and to explore whether I believe it or not. Mm-hmm. It's not the issue. It's around how do I honor and respect, right, others and what's important and valuable to them. Mm-hmm.
0: So I, this is maybe just my bias and and my limited understanding of of what it might be like to work at let's just say a, a governmental organization. But stereotypically, it seems like a governmental organization would be bureaucratic, slow to change, and and have a very traditional way of doing things that hasn't been adapted very much over time. And so I'm already very impressed by the way that you're describing your personal ability to listen to and understand the various voices, types of people in the room. But when you are engaged to work with an organization that is more bureaucratic and slower to change and probably doesn't have any sort of skill set around listening to others and Creating actually inclusive spaces. What is it? What does it look like? like? Where do you Where do you even start with an organization like that?
1: Well, usually because of that very characteristic is why I'm invited into the system, right? Because there's some level of resistance to change, or there's been some crisis that has required or identified a need for there to be a change, and so I would. Start by framing the context around how it is that I get to be into these systems, and how be they I'm very bureaucratic, a lot of red tape, and layers and layers upon approvals to get to a yes, if you will. I I think what becomes important again, I believe, is this notion of listening, and then because I'm a native Washingtonian, I understand a bit about government having had my first government job when i was 13 and i don't go in with expectations that it's going to be quick right i go in with an expectation that there is a process and then tapping into that process and then communicating in a way in which people can hear i think sometimes when you don't have the lens to which people can hear what it is that you're saying right because i look through it as it doesn't take all of that well Maybe in some systems it doesn't, but in this one it does. And so then how do I begin to create opportunities for small change? Right. I think when we began to try to shift, particularly we're talking about an organization's culture here, a massive change quickly, you, you can, there's a plethora of data that says that usually the change doesn't stick. And so I, I have as an expectation for myself, and I share that with the client, is that let's just do this bite-sized pieces around. So what's within our sphere of control to change, right? What's within our sphere to influence around the change? And then what is it that we're concerned about? And guess what? We don't have the money, time, or capacity to change. So let's look at it at all different levels and then start with what's within our sphere of control to, to be able to change. And so frustrating it can be. I'm not gonna purport that this is an easy process, but what I will submit to you is that most of the public servants that I work with have a standard of excellence, despite what we see on the front page of the Washington Post or we may hear on CNN or MS, all of them, right? That. There are many, many people that have a standard of excellence and really want to deliver a quality, good and or service to the American people. And so then how do we figure out how to harness, if you will, that desire and that passion in a way that begins to turn this humongous ship, the system mm-hmm. around in all of the turbulent political waters that they're required to make those changes and shifts in? Mm mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, one one of the things, there's a couple of things I'm hearing. One of them, which wasn't said explicitly, but very much seems true, is that you seem to assume positive intent for people, that they wake up in the morning and want to do good. Whether or not their behavior is aligned with their intentions is a, another story. But that seems to be a really important place to operate from. And I'm also struck by, it sounds like the like when you use the example of your friend who's from Nigeria and, and listening to her and understanding her customs, that even though you might not agree with the way that an organization or a government is doing business, that if you're able to listen to them and meet them where they are and not come in with your own personal agenda about this is the way I think it should be and I'm right,
1: <laughs> Yes,
0: that's really yeah. uh, actually helps the, the change is much more likely to, to happen, right?
1: Absolutely, because one of my favorite sayings from one of my mentors, Nancy Rosenshine, and that is that when you're so sure you're right, take a deep breath and consider the remote possibility that you're not, right? And so really having that as a framework, particularly when we, I find that when our core values are rubbed up against, that's where we create this shield and this resistance around how right we are because our values are right for everyone. Mm. And when we are able to step back from what it is that we hold true to our core values that are non-negotiables, that may not be true for the person that we're in interaction with. And being okay, right? If it's not illegal, immoral, and unethical, what difference does it make at the end of the day for me, right? But again, I'm 65, and so I've had to learn this over time. (laughs) No, <laughs> well, I this is I can't, I can't say I knew that when I was in my twenties and thirties.
0: I, I mean, you you set it up perfectly for one of the places I wanted to go, which is how did you develop these skills? Like, you're if you're 65, you've been you've been in the game for I'll omit the amount of years, but you've been in the game for a little bit. You've learned a lot of lessons, but well, can you share some examples of lessons that you learned that you've internalized so that you can show up with? the patient's ability to listen, et cetera, all the beautiful things that you've spoken about so far.
1: Yeah. So I would say, and this, this lesson, <laughs> I shall never forget because it could have been a colossal disaster to one of the points that we were talking about earlier. And that is going into a system, having the answer, right? You know, you, you see a lot of organizations in their title solution, this and solution that. And what, uh I did was I went into an organization based on having spoken to one person who was my, my client, and he brought us in, and he was like, well, this is the problem, and you need to do this, this, is." and we began to facilitate a meeting based on that one piece of data. And I say we got through the introductions, and there was a, almost a revolt in the room right? And this was at a scientific government agency. So we had PhDs, MDs, and a whole bunch of very smart folks in the room. And they were having none of it. And so my colleague and I sat down after they were like, well, we don't know where you got this from and what you're saying is not true. And we had created this nice, fancy agenda, and all of these activities and the like. And we came in under the assumption that the data that was presented to us was accurate and everything else was and complete. It was just a wash and we we're gonna mark forward. And so and this was like about 10 o'clock, and we may have started at around 8:30 or nine about. And so I whispered to her, I said, girl, what in the world are we gonna do? Because this is not gonna last and it was scheduled to go until three or four o'clock. So we're not gonna make it. And so we called a break. We said, okay, we've heard you, allow us a few minutes to caucus. We took 15 minutes to caucus. And then from that fatal mistake, it was the best intervention that we ever done because we listened to the people. They said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't have all of the data. So what we did was then we created a listening session, small groups for each group to identify what are the critical items that we need to be discussing? Right. And so then we took from that list that I think there were probably about 50 to 75 folks in a room. And we took from those lists all of the items and listed them and then asked them to rank order them by way of priority. And then we took that and created the agenda. But I am here to tell you, if we had marched forward with the agenda that we had created based on that one data point, That could have been a career-limiting move. And so that was a lesson learned that taught me, don't ever, as long as you shall live, go into an organization designing an intervention based on one data point, right? He didn't want us to interview the staff. He just said, this is it. And he gave us our marching orders. Oh, by the way, he introduced us and then left. He didn't stay there to support the team or any such thing. And so that was an invaluable lesson to really go into a system, even if somebody gives us a an agenda or what they perceive to be the issue, to figure out a way to collect data on the spot and not just operate off of that off of that one premise. So yeah. that was <laughs> that took me a painful but very valuable lesson. For mm-hmm. sure. yeah yeah?
0: So I know that you do both coaching and consulting. And yes. I'm a coach as well. And a lot of times when folks engage to work with me, and I'm sure this has happened with you before, I'm actually being leaned on in some way to have an answer. Like if I if I get curious and and want to listen and understand more of the details and, and more of the stories and beliefs and all that, so a lot of times someone that's talking to me says, I don't know. That's why I've engaged you. I, you, you tell me the answer. So yeah if and when that happens for you, how do you, is, is that like an invitation for you to jump in and, and say, well, this, these are my thoughts or or is there a way that you even deepen your ability to listen
1: from there? Yes and yes. So I, I I start with this premise. People support what they help to create, right? So I can create a solution, but I'm not sure that it'll stick. And so just last night I was, Coaching, a a young lady's really trying to get into the industry of coaching. And in the D.C. area, it's a saturated market. And so I offered her a couple of solutions, right? I said, so she's like, but I'm so frustrated. I don't understand So I said. Okay, so here are a couple of options, like a drop-down menu, and you get to choose. So if you really want to come into the field, you may want to consider the area of going into a field in HR that has a training arm And then if they don't have a coaching component, then you could add that, right? The second offering, and so I gave her three to to choose from as some possibilities around how it is that she could actually get into the field because she was experiencing a level of frustration around entry points. I said, one of the things that I was able to do is I partnered with like, At that point, they were old folks. I was in my thirties when I started this work and now in my sixties. And so there were folks who were my age. So I said some older folks with with salt (laughs) pepper hair. And I said, and working alongside of those folks when they had overflow of work, then they gave it to me, right? Because I had built a rapport and a network with seasoned folks in the field. And so I offered her that as as a second possibility And noting that there are also certain organizations like around the DC beltway. And so I said to her, for example, the State Department has the Foreign Service Institute, which is their leadership and management arm, one of the things that they do at at the Institute. And so they have a whole department that focuses on that. And that might be an entry point where you could start exploring as a possibility and so if you're interested in global work, then you have an avenue, if you will, into doing international work with um, USAID as well as state, both locally and abroad. And so, yes, I will lean into it, but at first I start asking them questions, helping them to discover what their answer might be. And as a last resort, I never offer a solution, but multiple ways in which they can think of it and then... I uh, say to them, you know, based on where you are, what you want, how much time you're looking at, then you would need to decide for yourself what's really the best fit.
0: Mm-hmm. Is this something that you historically had a, a tougher time with? Like in, in one past appearance that you made on a podcast, you talked about there was a a charge that you brought to the work. Like we, if, if there was a change you wanted, you you were really showing up in like this. this shit's not okay. And yeah. I'm not, I'm not about that. And it seems like you have a, a more, not that you care less, you care just as much, but there's just a more relaxed way of, of being and, and moving through all of that. So I, I guess what I'm getting at is, how did you develop that skill? Or what, what have been some ways that you have developed that skill or lessons that you've learned along the way that reinforced all this energy is, is being channeled in a way that's not actually productive. Being more relaxed and caring is is the way to be.
1: Uh, so is it the around the tenacity and the kind of speaking truth to power that piece?
0: That's yeah. That?
1: Yeah. So for, for me, you know, as a woman of color, like inequities and unfair treatment, of folks is something that gets my dander up. And, uh, you know, I don't know that I'm a captain hero or any such thing, but I have low tolerance for systems that have embedded in their processes ways to exclude certain populations. And so if you really want to get me fired up, put me in a system in which something like that might, might exist. And so I think as I matured, I was able to garner enough confidence to know that, you know what, oftentimes folks want you in the system to speak the truth because they can't do it without consequences. And so when I learned that that's part of my role as a consultant, then I could move in with a level of passion and assertiveness that if I were an internal person, that I probably could not do. So if I observe it, particularly in the data collection, right, and so in some instances, when I do diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work, if I am hearing this recurring theme around a lack of fairness, right, a lack of access, whether it's promotion, plum projects, and the like, then I make sure that when I do the readout around by observations and recommendations, that that is clear and it is not sugar. It is not watered down. I don't sugarcoat it. I give it to them straight, no chaser, up. Okay? Because that's just not okay. Whether it's in a public service, private sector, nonprofit, doesn't matter to me. This This passion that I have about humanity And to Mm -hmm. some some extent, I think it's about justice, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do I bring a sense of fairness, equity and justice to folks who tend to be underserved, underrepresented and what we call in our society, marginalized population. And I learned something last week when I was training that folks that Westerners called called, call marginalized are members of a global Mm -hmm. majority.
0: Mm.
1: so um, I'm I'm learning to say no longer minorities but a member of the global majority mm-hmm. because when we look at western culture it may not be true but when we look globally folks who are are brown and black represents a larger, larger population mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: well diversity equity inclusion accessibility belonging I'll, I'll throw in there too because I think those are those are really important things that Organizations are starting to make some sort of progress around, but we have such a long way to go. I mean, I know a lot of organizations that probably in in their heart of hearts as an organization really think that they're doing the best that they can. And that might be true. And there's also so much around inclusivity that to me, I mean, from, from my experience of interviewing lots of other folks who do incredible work. A lot of times, inclusivity actually implies, whether it's intended or not, this is a white, able-bodied space, and we, we welcome everyone else here. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wonder how, you know, as someone who doesn't sugarcoat it and doesn't water it down, and organizations that are well-intended but also aren't actually creating cultures where, let's just say, women and people of color don't really feel like they belong. What, like, it's a big question, but where do you, what, how do you help an organization start to actually create spaces where there is belonging and inclusivity?
1: Well, I think one of the first things that is really important to do is to talk about what it is that they do well first, Mm. right? Because you have to open up the conversation. If you start the conversation, well, you don't do this, you don't do this, you could do this, right? Then it shuts down the conversation automatically and you don't even get to... Go. And so one of the things that I've learned over the years is that it's important to be able to start with appreciative inquiry. Right. So this is what it is that I say that we observe and really appreciate about your efforts and not a but. And these are some of the things that you might consider right? so that you can build upon what it is that you're already doing really, really well. To really take your programs, your efforts, your values in a way that causes you to be best in class. Because, you know, in organizations, most folks want the me too, you know. So if these folks over here are doing it, then we too can do it. And so, really creating a space and a container that helps folks see one, you're doing some things well, irrespective of how minimal or marginal they are, right? And then, this is a journey to this destination possibly. And again, I'm big on small steps, can't take the whole enchilada, but you can begin with very, very, very small steps towards success. And I think that's what allows folks to hear, right? And then as we move, I can become more passionate about the criticality of doing things. And so when we get to the implementation stage, why did we have to do it this way? And why is this important? then that's the time now that we're moving into actions to accomplish some of these things that I can be more forceful and more direct around what some of the consequences might be around the exclusion of certain persons or parties, right? So that this notion of belonging isn't as narrow as race, ethnicity, and gender, right? mm-hmm. To your point around even who gets chosen for different assignments, right? And so, where are our biases, right, around affinity affinity groups, right, affirmations, I mean, there's so many biases that sometimes organizations and systems hold that nobody's really pointed out to say, do you realize that, you know, that that's a bias and the impact of that, when you say this, how it lands with others, because there's this, I, I do mediation, I used to, I haven't done much of it lately around EEO issues is that usually the person that has aggrieved someone says, well, that's not what I intended. That's not what I meant, Mm -hmm. right? And so this whole notion of being intentional about what you say and how it lands on the recipient is really important, irrespective of what you intended, right? The impact was something very different. And so to what extent are you prepared to do the repair work in the relationship? Mm -hmm. And that's the piece that, We don't want to necessarily take on because if I'm Madam Sir Leader, then you know, I'm right in all of my ways. And this notion of repair work is not something that I'm willing to submit myself to or to extend grace so that I can be heard, valued, and respected from my position, Madam Sir, leader, Mm -hmm. boss, whomever. Hmm.
0: That it seems like a, a Western thing too, to say, well, that's not what I intended, and and to in a lot of ways take responsibility for how other people might feel right so it's like if I didn't mean for it to be this way then then I'm off the hook I'm clear and I mean that happens in intimate relationships all the time too yeah Yeah. I mean I I have conversations with my wife all the time where I say something and it it might be upsetting and it's not my job to try and figure out how I Mm -hmm. well but if I if I slow it down. If I could just meet her where she is with how she feels, that that's, is, that's where the repair is, right? So yeah. being able to empathize and understand where the other person is and not make it such a head game of like, well, it's not what I meant. And-
1: yeah, yeah. Like move it from the head to the heart. There's been a rupture, right? Yes. And if something is ruptured, there's a broken piece in it. And that's why we walk around the walking wounded. We're all broken, right? Mm-hmm. And to what extent am I prepared to stand still to men to help repair the rupture. Now, having said that, now some folks come with pathologies that you can't diagnose or treat into the organizations. And so let me like just clearly set that aside. But, you know, all things being equal, when there are breakdowns in communication, then am I mature and healthy enough to own my part in it and do what's necessary to try to get it back on an even keel? Or do I just say, well, that's just who I am and that's their problem?
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it sounds like taking 100% responsibility, which is a, something yeah. that I think about a lot. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, I was thinking, well, I, I wanted to check one thing with you before we get into, I, I, I want to get into perfectionism a little bit because I, from what I've learned, perfectionism is a sign of all sorts of, of other messes. and we're, we're trying so hard to do it right, yeah. be perfect, and that causes, that can cause a lot of damage. But uh, appreciative inquiry is something I wrote down when you were speaking. I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit more to what appreciative inquiry is.
1: So, one of the premises, and I don't know that I can give you each one of the steps, but one of the primary pieces of appreciative inquiry is starting with what is going well, right? Mm-hmm. So let's take time to celebrate the things that we do well and let's call them out individually. So we might acknowledge what it is that's working, if you will, versus which we tend to do a lot in Western culture, let's find the problem and just march straight on to the solution. And so really giving people an opportunity to celebrate their accomplishments and a lot of the hard work that they've done versus running from one problem to the next problem And so forth. And then taking that acknowledgement and that inquiry into appreciating what it is that's been done well. So how do we replicate that? So how do we scale that so that as a team, we can continue to do these best practices that we've learned that really netted us that success in the past? And integrate if you will that as a part of the value or the norms or the ways in which we do business so that it's not lost because we're running off to solve the next problem but we hit the pause button long enough to celebrate and to appreciate what is hmm. I was like is byron K- Katie's work around appreciating what is and so I think yes. those those two pieces their points of intersectionalities, around how it is we could so benefit from just stopping for a moment to appreciate and to celebrate what is. And that's why I like Appreciative Inquiry, the little thin book on uh, Appreciative Inquiry. And I forget who the authors are, but mm-hmm. that's the brain science behind it for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And on a, a personal level, a lot, of, a lot of folks talk about having a gratitude practice and Yes. It, it establishes a lot of really great things, including sufficiency in your life, right? Like, if you appreciate what is already, then it actually allows way more opportunity for the other things that we would diagnose as bad or incorrect or yeah. wrong to uh, be more able to be changed. So I think it's it's a beautiful thing. I never thought of doing a gratitude practice at an organizational level, but it's I really love that.
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I typically use it quite a bit with with intact teams, right? And if I do a larger scale, say like, for example, a strategic planning meeting, I try to start with that, even though they would have me to start with a problem. I, mm-hmm. I often try to start with something like appreciative inquiry.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. Well, uh, there's a part of me that is thinking, oh, God, if I go back to perfectionism and, and doing it right, like, uh, do I, do I want to maybe focus on something that we can appreciate? But <laughs> I did want to yeah. talk to you about, about perfectionism and, and doing it right and how it seems so pervasive. It's been one of my toughest challenges in my life, especially with background in accounting, that a lot of times, especially when I was a staff, a pretty junior staff, Yeah. Almost every piece of feedback I was getting was here are the things that were done incorrectly on the return or the thing I was working on. And I, what, you know, what one of the qualities that I've internalized, not just from accounting, but over my lifetime from school, there's probably a lot of different systems that are reinforcing this, but I've just tried to be so perfect that I won't make the mistakes. And that isn't really locks a lot of humanity flowing.
1: Yeah. And I think in some ways it stagnates creativity Mm. and innovation, right? Because we have this mental model that says it must be done this way, right? Versus, okay, so this is a suggested way. And then these are the opportunities around where we could do something different. Now, I know that in accounting and in law, sometimes, you know, you, you're looking for a level of precision, right? But even in law, there's the letter of the law, and then there's the spirit of the law. And most of the cases are one in gray. But going back to the example, I think that there are certain disciplines that really reward only perfection, mm-hmm. right? And what does that do to the human spirit, you know, because getting to perfection is a journey. Like, who starts being perfect in any discipline and where is the space for grace so that I can grow and learn versus being reprimanded for a misstep, a miscalculation or any miss, right? Just fill in the blank that I think creates, particularly what we're seeing in our society today, an inordinate amount of anxiety. An inordinate amount of anxiety, because I believe just as a behavioral scientist that the, the pressures that are put on children. I mean, and we we start this stuff early now. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I was growing up, we didn't I, I mean, I don't even know that my parents would go and sleep all night at, to get my get us in a magnet school where only gifted and talented kids went. kids are gifted and talented, right? And so we create this mental model and then continue to pass it on to children around, if we do this, then you're perfect or you're better than, and it sets up a us versus them very early on. And so where do I have an opportunity to learn and grow in an environment that's not judgmental, where I don't have to be perfect and Mm. get it right every time?
0: Mm. So like, where do we even start with, let's just take an, again, a bureaucratic organization that it's probably rewarded to be someone who, and it, it's a lot of times you know, I'm speaking about perfectionism in a way that is, I don't know, a, a critique in some way of, of the quality, but being a perfectionist in a lot of ways, in my experience, it's like one of those things where in an interview, someone might ask what's your greatest flaw or area for development and, and people is a throwaway in a way, or a backhanded compliment of themselves, or like, I'm really hard on myself, but it shows my commitment to doing it right and being perfect. Mm -hmm. But it it does stifle creativity and innovation. And so how do you help people let go a little, even if it's just like a little bit, because that seems to be your approach, like baby steps towards letting go of perfectionism.
1: Yeah, I think, so what comes up for me is a sense of safety and security around being vulnerable. Mm. and not having to have the right answer. So how do I inside myself, right? So irrespective of what others are expecting and thinking that I should do, they have their shitty attitudes and they should all over us (laughs) around what we should be doing. And it's around, so how do I inwardly begin to think about, you know what, I am not a perfect person. And can I sit with that? And if I can own that I am imperfect, And that I'm on a journey to perfection that I may never achieve in the course of my life. But that's a place that I'm on my way to. And it's not about what it is that I do or that I don't. And so I if I were to coach and I have I'm recalling a particular client who went to Princeton, graduated top of her class, had a father for whom she was always expected to get A's. And so she works, and so when she is critiqued, then she is triggered about that need to be perfect. And so she spent an inordinate amount of time at work to get it right, to get it perfect, to the point that it was having a, a an impact on her family life. But it was all her inward stuff around being triggered around having to be perfect and having to get it right first time and all of the time. And so I was able to work with her and ask her the questions. And so why is it so important? Where did you get the notion that it had to be perfect? And then who are you trying to please then? And who are you trying to please now? And, and noting that once we get an aha moment around that, I think it's in that moment or in that point that we can own our humanity because like, who does anything all the time perfectly? Not a single solitary human being. It's like, you know what? It's okay to make mistakes. And in that, how do I extend grace to myself? Around the fact that I certainly blew it that time. And you know, beat up on myself for a day or so, but then the next day I have to shake it and let it go. And I say, um, having folks that we can be accountable to can really be important about that. That, that notion of perfectionism because you would note probably most high achievers, right, align themselves with other high achievers. And so where do you diversify your community? so that you get to see what not being a perfectionist or a high achiever actually looks like. You might actually have some fun laughing at yourself, right? Around yeah. how, how crazy making the the stance or the standard we place on ourselves can actually be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why I like to start with those kinds of questions. Where, where did the, Where did this notion come from that it must be done that way? And oh, by the way, is there another possible way for it to get done? And well, thank you. That's... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: No, I was just going to say that's a it's a really profound example, a beautiful question, a very disarming question that that helps us drop into our humanity. I I felt it as you asked that question, and <sighs> and I, I think we're we're definitely making good headway, not only in the U.S. but globally around. Leadership not being a, a title or a a capability type of thing that we, you know, a leader needs to be the best at everything and never get it wrong and, and all these things. And so I'm, I'm wondering how you look at leadership, because in my estimation, one of the best models of leadership is given the right set of circumstances, being vulnerable and saying, I don't have the answers. And I know actually... From the first time that we spoke, uh, there's, I think you have an assistant or, or someone who organizes your email. And I think it's a beautiful thing. This is a model of leadership for you to just go, I am not good at organizing my email. I'm going to hire someone who that's, that's their genius.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think to your point around, so what is leadership? I believe it's the ability to get things done through and by others. It's not about me. Right. And and so jury is the person who manages me. I may pay her, but jury manages the heck out of me by way of what's on my schedule, what time it is, what I need to do, when I need to do it, etc. And I am quite OK with that, because to your point, we all have our natural giftings and organizing. When I got in line with that, I got skipped over and, <laughs> and, and jury got a double dose of it. And and so I think that the the model that I like or have a a great appreciation for is the model of servant leadership, right? Mm -hmm. And so servant leadership speaks of being of service to the folks that you are leading, right? And so it turns the whole leadership model upside down. And that is at the top are the people. And I, as the leader, I'm at the bottom being of service to others. And that's the work of Greenleaf that is it's timeless around servant leadership and how it is that I can position myself to say, well, while I may have the title, I may have the money, but my call is to be of service to you first, right? I may have technical competence that I will share broadly with you but absent the humanity of being of service, then it's for naught. Because again, people, people support what they have to create and people want three things, to be heard, valued, and respected. And if I am being of service to you, then I need to hear what's important to you. I want to value your point of view, right? And respect your humanity. Hmm. And so I think for me, a leader that is effective and has put his or her ego on the shelf is one who really appreciates the ability to be of service to others, to get the results through and by others as you support them, right? And serve as a resource, whether it's money, whether it's knowledge, whether it's in relationships, where it is that you can collaborate. It's my job to make sure that you have access to all of that and not say you go figure it out and then i take credit for everything that you do mm-hmm. not so much
0: mm-hmm. so much do you have examples of in my estimation there are there have been templates of servant leaders for as long as humans have been on this planet i i was actually thinking of marcus aurelius the, the emperor of rome who in his book meditations is really openly talking about uh, the challenges that he had, and, and he strikes me as a servant leader. So I'm, I'm wondering if there's anyone who you most look up to as a, a good template of what it means to be a servant leader or or maybe a voice in the space that you admire, look up to, something like that. Wow.
1: So the person... Who comes to mind was a woman for whom I worked for at the Agency for International Development. That we we crossed paths one of my first jobs, and then we reconnected like about fifteen or twenty years later. And she almost always was about okay. So what do you need? Her name was Dr. Sarah Elizabeth Moten, and Dr. Moten was the chief of the Africa Bureau at the Agency for International Development and had such a heart and compassion for people that I never, ever forgot. I mean, even to this day, she would communicate what her goals were and then say, like, go do it and come back, right? She would give you the the parameters, right? And so this is what we have to get it done. You go and create it and then come back and present your findings, and so for me, as a person who loves autonomy, that's like I had bags on heaven, like that's manna from heaven, that I have that level of latitude. And so she definitely modeled the way, you know, Kuzner and Posner's in their work, um, Leadership Challenge, talk about the importance of modeling the way as a key component around how to be an effective leader. And I would say that Dr. Moten certainly modeled the way, whether it was with the consultants, whether it was with her staff, her, she had a publicist that she would say, okay, so you can follow me and write whatever it is you want and then like get it to me and then we'll, we'll work on editing it. And so I would think that maybe one of the characteristics that I so valued and appreciated about her was this notion of collaboration, right? So this, this way in which, even though she was Madam Dr. Mrs., right, with all of this education and all of her years of experience, I don't know that I've ever seen her talk down or make an individual feel less than, mm-hmm. irrespective of what your job was, right, when you worked with her, that, that that was just her style. And she allowed space for you to screw it up. And then she would just ask questions like, so help me understand, like, what were you? You thinking, or why did you decide that? Never, like, why in the world did you do this? And then start to ridicule you. And I think one of the takeaways from her way of correction was that you can give folks feedback and leave them with their dignity, right? So you don't have to take away an individual's dignity because they've made a mistake and how it is you seek to correct them, which is not something that I always see. I'm not going to say I don't see it often, but I, I don't always see that in some. Some leaders' kind of way of being.
0: So I want to make sure that I link to her and everyone else that we might mention in the conversation correctly in the show notes. So it's Dr. Sarah Elizabeth. Is it M O T O N
1: Moten? M O T E N. M O T E N. Yeah, and she's gone on the glory, so you can't connect her. Got. It. But but her daughter would appreciate it because her daughter has set up a foundation for her. So absolutely.
0: Okay, beautiful. And what, what is that foundation?
1: I have to send it to you because I can't tell you. I know, I know it's the Sarah Milton Foundation, but I don't have like the, the website and the, the information, and I'll get it from her daughter, Michelle. Okay, we'll, we'll coordinate
0: that and, and make sure that it's for sure linked in the show notes. And something that I definitely wanted to get to because it seems central maybe not central, it seems really important and valuable to you and and something that you're currently working through in your life right now is this ability to pivot both personally and professionally. And so we, we've we spoken at, you know, a good length at this point about change, but I'm, I'm wondering why that's one of the things that you brought into the prep for the conversation as something that you definitely wanted to talk about today. Well, I think,
1: well, what's really important and in all of the work that I've done and continue to do, maybe even back to your point about perfection, folks believing that there's one right way. And I would submit to you that if that's our mental model, we miss opportunities. And so how do we create and understand that light is very dynamic and not static? And, and so this notion around pivoting is, if you can imagine, Tai Chi. There, there are slow, deliberative moves, right, that we can make, small may they be, to really shift the end result. So if we think about, for example, the 3M and the post-it notes, right? So the post-it notes were designed or came to be as a result of scientists trying to create a stronger adhesive And the post-it notes came out as a byproduct of it. What if they decided to throw all of that stuff away and didn't pivot to say, so what else or how else might we use this, right? And so that's an example of a, a frame of mind that says, okay, so it's not turning out the way I had hoped, but is there another possibility? And so this notion, particularly in leadership around, Really suspending our judgment about the right way to create space for innovation, right? And ingenuity around what it is that we are attempting to do. Another example is, you know, that Botox, all of the folks that love Botox, right? For, you know, straightening out our forehead and all of our wrinkles. That wasn't the initial intent for Botox, it was for our angina, right? Open up the heart and all of that kind of stuff. And so again, if the scientists in, in this instance in the in the medical field had looked at there's only one use for Botox. A lot of us who have taken advantage of not having the wrinkles across our forehead would have missed this opportunity. And so I think this notion of pivoting speaks to what's our capacity to be agile, mm-hmm. right? And 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 shift from the only one right way, what we are facing in, in the public sector, right, as a result of the pandemic, folks don't want to go back to the office, right? They've been working from home for two years, two and a half years. And so guess what we're finding? That sometimes folks are doing better working from home than they were when they were in the office. And so are we going to have a mental model that says, oh, absolutely not. Everybody must come back to work. Really? And for the taxpayers' dollars, where all of that real estate that's being leased, there's no real need for it, right? So is there something in between the absolute of everybody gotta come back to work to the place where folks are really appreciating and enjoying working from home? Is there something in the middle, right? How might we pivot to what most folks are calling a hybrid model now? where folks work from home three days and come into the office too. And so how do we begin to make, again, those small pivots so that we can live a more expansive life, right? We can get to a better quality of life. For example, I was working with a client at the Department of Energy and one of their locations in California where the, the, the facility is very expensive to live in a community. And so most folks who work for the government have to live an hour, hour and a half away and end up spending three hours minimally to and from work. And he was saying to me, well, LeAngelo, like, if we move to make folks come back to work, come back into the office, a lot of folks are already threatening to quit and to resign. And so I think I, re- I firmly believe that understanding and knowing and having a a structure of thought that there's more than one right answer, right? And so how do I pivot to explore what some of the other answers or possible answers might be and not just be so narrow-minded and when you have your blinders on?
0: Yeah, rigid maybe.
1: Yeah, so there's a level of rigidity. And we have blind spots because we've only considered... This one way of getting things done. And so that's why, for me, leaders that have to, I believe, could benefit, if you will, from this notion of a pivot. And when I teach this class, it's called the art of the pivot, because we so much want to lean into the science. And there's an art and a science, so I have enough facts, so that's the science of it. The art is, how do I do it in a way that's graceful and in mind and aligned with the people's humanity? So I don't just like make a sudden shift. I don't have, I have some science that says that we shouldn't be doing this that or the other, but where's the humanity in that, right? Mm -hmm. And so my invitation to leaders for their consideration is around, so how do we become masterful at the art of the pivot so that we use the data to support the reason that we must pivot and then an art that calls us to a a, a place of grace and making that shift to happen.
0: It's a beautiful question. I think there's there's a lot of different curiosities I have about what you've teed up. And I really appreciate the examples. I, I didn't know that about the Post-it. I did not know that about Botox. And I mean, one one piece of commentary I have is that a lot of times, from what I've seen at least, the types of organizations that are resisting the change and saying we need to get back into the office five days a week are, are the ones that are the most old school and have uh, cultures that aren't really supporting, except that they make good money. That seems to be what a lot of organizations hang their head on. And something that, that came up for me as you were speaking is that I think whether or not they believe it to be true, a lot of organizations that are saying we need everyone to come into the office, they might hide behind or maybe even truly believe this is what is going to create a strong culture. We need to all be in together as much as possible. Yeah. So I know that you focus a lot on hybrid work or at-home work and, and culture too. And so how, how do you look at building culture, even if we're not face-to-face with the people that we work with?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that I've begun to do with leaders is to really have them be in conversation around, so how do you pull down some of these, these barriers around how things get done, get done? And so one of my offers or invitations to them is, What will it take for you to get to know each person one-on-one, right? And so that means that even in this virtual sense, that you pick up the phone, a schedule of Teams, or a Zoom meeting where each person can bring a cup of coffee and let's just have a conversation for the love of God, right? Mm -hmm. Versus everything happening to be so task-driven. And so creating processes where, one, I get to know each person on my team individually, right to so how do we create opportunities to celebrate each other in our virtual environment say for example i had one client to do a contest around who could create the most creative or interesting like screen paper background and then have folks to like vote on it and then have some type of celebration how do we have staff meetings virtually Right. So if you're around the same area geographically, you have Domino Pizza Hut, all of those folks that can deliver pizza or sandwich those Johnny Long's and all those other kinds of places that will deliver. Right. And invest the money to have the food delivered to all of the team members at the same time, get on and into a virtual environment and let's have a lunch and learn. So what is it that we're doing? And so there are ways that we can remove some of the barriers, right? in our mind around how our virtual communities can continue to grow and thrive, right? And so having some young folks to like create it, you all do whatever it is you want to do, come back to me with three or four options and let's figure out how to make it work. And uh, again, modeling the way saying, listen, I don't know, right? This is something that's new to me and my ego's in check and I can ask you for suggestions and I can adopt the uh, suggestions that you might present, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's low cost, no cost, you give folks the parameters and let them create the culture, that's going to be meaningful for them. Because, again, people support what they help to create, get them to create the culture. You put the motivating factors in the environment and let them rip. And mm-hmm. I think that you know it, it can happen if you're intentional about Why is it important, right? The important is like the, what is it they call, the three Cs, right? So how do we create a culture where we collaborate? How do we create a culture where we are communicating, right? And I forget what the second one is, connecting, right? Mm -hmm. So we get to stay connected through collaboration. We also stay connected through collaboration, Right. So let's communicate, collaborate so that the end result is that we are connected as a, a work group, a work team, et cetera, so that the communication is not dropped through some falls into some black hole someplace, but that we are very intentional. Harvard has a, a template that I've used for virtual teams around. So for our communication, what are we going to use to communicate policies? Are we going to only use emails or what are the things that we're going to use instant messenger for? What are the things that we're going to be on video conferences for, right? So that you set up the established ways in which it is that you can begin to create that culture. So that folks know what the operating rules are or the rules of engagement, et cetera, because within the public space, you know, there's a lot of money spent on employee engagement. So, Asking the folks, like, what is it going to take for you to continue to be engaged even in this this virtual environment? So that would be my offer around how it is that leaders are intentional. And again, using a servant leader model, I'm, I'm here of service to help you create this because it's important so that we can stay connected so that we can collaborate and communicate in service of the delivery of goods and services to the American people and now even globally. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, consider me a fan of what you're offering. And it it seems like, Leandro, it seems like paradoxically, and I know this is true for me, if there's an attempt at the organization to meet everyone where they are and say, we don't need to come back into the office if this is what is going to be most effective for you, paradoxically, I'm actually more likely to want to come into the office and connect face-to-face with folks, right? Because I'm feeling empowered and listened to and heard, like right? those and valued, like the things that you said that we all most care about. And so it, it's another human thing, I think, that we, we don't really like to be dragged around and told what to do and we have to do this. If if we're empowered, then we're gonna do the thing that is most connecting
1: anyway. Absolutely. Toddlers don't want to be told what to do, let alone a grown adult, right? You try to make a toddler do something they don't want to do, and they will show you some resistance by stretching out on the floor like a board and say, you can't make me do it. And and I believe that it's, it's a both and. And what we have considered to be right is that there's only one way to get things done. And I would invite folks into the space of it's a both and situation. And so, again particularly in the, in the federal sector. So we want to make sure that it doesn't violate any federal law, any rules or regulations. Outside of that, where are the possibilities? right? Mm-hmm. Versus no, but. I used to have a client, you know, he would, he would say no, but. I'm like, no, if it's either no or it's not, like stop with the but already. And um, the work of, um, I, I like using the, the um, title of Fisher and Uri's book, Getting to Yes?, And so that's my thing, like, who can be in the room to get us to a yes, right? We can find out all the reasons why not do something. Then let's talk about how do we get to a yes. One of my favorite professors at at Hopkins, when I was doing my master's program, said to me, we can have what we want in life or reasons why not. And so, like, we can come up with the excuses why we can't do things, but just imagine we can have exactly what we want. Where we can live in the space of the reasons why not, and that was Michael, Doctor Michael Broome. So yeah, so I think that those are the things that really can move us into exploring what the possibilities might be if we would just be willing to be a little bit more open minded and flexible and pivot, if you will, mm-hmm. to that that way of thinking and being in the world. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I I get a sense that there's going to be a a both end here in your answer somewhere. But I'm curious, with with regards to pivoting, if you find it useful, like a lot of businesses focus on five-year plan, 10-year plan. And I I get the sense that it's going to be, yes, plans and visions are really helpful and being nimble and willing to pivot if and when the data presents itself, right? Is that how you look at vision.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's important to have one, right? Because that sets your strategic goal and direction, right? It's your true north and that's where you're headed. Now, if things are happening along the way that says, hey, you know, there's a big ditch, does it mean that I'm just gonna keep going straight to fall into it? (laughs) No, I might need to pivot and take, you know, if, if you think about construction routes, right? Sometimes we have to take a detour go around, and then come back and get on course, right? And so I think if we reside in this place of rigidity, then I think we'll miss some of the opportunities. If you've ever traveled and come across a detour, sometimes it takes you on some very scenic routes that are very beautiful, that you would have missed the glory and the splendor of taking a mountainside ride versus being on the interstate. And so I think that there are things, again, to be said, about when we come across a detour in life. it's the, again, the opportunity to pivot. It's the the delta, right? When we see that how many folks are driving ahead, that you know how the, the Department of Transportation puts those cones up. They have this whole science as to how they begin to notify, right, the motorists when you need to get over. And invariably, there are folks who wait till they get Face to face <laughs> with the detour sign before they try to get over versus really just merging along the way, 1,200 feet, 1,500 feet, 500 feet, three. And so I think when we begin to see as motorists in our lives, right, when we're traveling this, this road called the journey of life, that when we begin to see that there's some cones along the way that could be suggesting that we take an alternative route or begin to merge some of our thinking into a single thought or a single way of doing things, we could probably benefit quite a bit from it. And so I don't say that, you know, you don't have it. I do say that, again, where are the opportunities for you to be open to additional possibilities. Hmm.
0: Oh, I, I love that analogy. There's been a lot of awesome illustrations, stories, <laughs> analogies. You're, you're just a, such a great speaker and one of the things I most admire about you is your continued appetite and zest for life and a desire to learn and grow. And one, one question I ask a lot of people who join me on this platform is, is where do you feel most unfinished in your life? And you're talking to me before we jumped on here about, you know, you're, you're finishing your doctorate program at, at Vanderbilt, and there's, it seems like you're as eager as ever to learn. So where, where where are you most drawn to these days? Where, where do you feel most unfinished?
1: Uh, great question. Where do I feel most unfinished? So I think in my career, I'm pretty much there, right? Still open into the learning. And I think the unfinished piece for me is around really documenting some of these lifelong lessons, right? So that they can be passed on by way of publishing, et cetera. So I think that that's a piece of unfinished business. And I think personally it's with my brands, right? Because I've been so focused on career and school. I mean, you know, I started this journey to do my doctorate at 60 something as a result of the pandemic, because I was going stir crazy in the house by myself. But I do think ways to impart some of my, my knowledge and my wisdom into, into my grands. I think that, you know, if I don't hurry up and get it done, you know, it'll be only at holidays that I get to see them because they're growing up so quickly. And so really investing the time, um, with my grands and maybe some younger folk mm-hmm. and like that I have, I, I still yet have work to do. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Angela, is there anything that we haven't spoken about so far today that feels important to you to bring into the conversation? I, I did my best to cover all the ground that that we had teed up together.
1: Yeah, no, you did an outstanding job, Michael. I, I can't imagine that there's any any stone that you left unturned. An excellent interview, great questions, and managing the conversations. It, you did an outstanding job. So thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to kind of share like what this life's journey has been like around leadership coaching and all of that kind of good stuff that I'm very passionate about. So again, thank you very much for the invitation. It's been an enjoyable an hour or so hour and a yeah. half. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it's been a blast for me. And I do, if, if you're willing, I do just have a, a couple more quicker questions for you.
1: I, I have time.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. So I see a wonderful stack of books behind you there. And I'd be curious as it pertains to what we've spoken about today there's And you have mentioned a couple books, like uh, Getting to Yes, was I, I wrote down here, but do you have one, two, or three books that you would recommend or that you've gifted to folks about leadership or pivoting or anything that we've spoken about today, D-E-I-N-A?
1: Yeah. So Dr. Randall Piggott, his book is right behind me. He and his colleague, Jeffrey Robinson, it's entitled Black Faces in High Places and Black Faces in White Spaces. I think they offer a really intriguing model around diversity, equity, and inclusion around how it is to navigate the corporate landscape, right? P-I-N-K-E-T-T, pick it. And so that piece I love. What I love about change is the work of William Bridges. I recommend that, you know, the transitions, making sense of life changes, because it's both useful personally and professionally anytime that there's a change and you're having to navigate and the piece that I like most about his work is how he makes the distinction of change and transition around how transition is the inside stuff and change happens externally so I love that work around because it's the psychological sticky-billy touchy stuff that we don't want to deal with we want to say oh I'm fine it's all right right and so that's why I love that piece. Flawless consulting is a piece. I discovered myself in my work through the book entitled A Consultant's Calling. I, had, I didn't know what a consultant was. And so in grad school, we had that book. And I'm like, oh my God, it was like I heard music. It was like ah. and so I <laughs> love that. If I had to say one of my you kind know, of like pivotal moments in And my journey was having read that book to really discover, like I I knew I didn't want to, to do anything with math. Right. I, while I love teaching, I didn't want to teach young kids. I didn't want to teach teenagers. Right. And academia didn't pay enough. And then I found, you know, training as a result of the consultants calling. So those would be the ones, but I could go on and on because I'm such a geek Mm. as it relates to books. I mean, you know, I used to have one side of my bed full of books because that's what I read multiple books at a time. So yeah, so those are some of my faves.
0: Amazing. So uh, of course, make sure to link to those in the show notes. What is an an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy?
1: Mm, Brings me great joy. I think the fact that I can laugh at myself, that I don't take myself too serious, right? And so I'm around the house talking to myself and, like, really realizing that, you know, it's hard being you sometimes, girl. Like, it really is. (laughs) I just simply have to laugh at myself. It's like, really, it's not that serious. And so what brings me joy is the fact that I can still laugh at myself and realize that, you know, I can't believe you did that. Oh, I can't believe you actually thought that or that you believed it as I think about it like retrospectively. So I think having the capacity to still laugh, I think laughter is so, so very important. And having that, that just brings joy to me. Oh, irrespective of where I am and what it is that I'm doing. Mm. And, I mean, I can have a bellowing laugh too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Great answer.
1: Sometimes, sometimes not so feminine and lazy like because my mother would have a fit. But <laughs> I'm all did, grown up now, so I don't have to be that way.
0: Did Did your mother ever pay you money to stop laughing?
1: <laughs> no, she didn't. Because I, I tell you, in her house, it wasn't a whole lot of laughter. It was a bunch of work. Uh-huh. And she had five. There were five of us. So there were five kids, and so it's like not a lot of time for fun. You had a lot of work to do, kids, and so get to stepping. <laughs> so that's what it was more like, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad that you don't take life and yourself too seriously and that you can laugh about it. It seems to be a very important quality. I uh, I will make sure to link. I know that you're on LinkedIn and you have a website. I'll make sure to link to those in the show notes. It's Consulting Ingram, right? Is that the website? Yes. Consulting Ingram.com. Yes. Consulting And I'll, um, of course. Because it kind
1: of looks like Consulting Ingram, but it's consulting Ingram. Yes.
0: Consult Ingram. Okay, Yeah. and I'll, I'll link to your LinkedIn page, and is there anywhere else that you'd invite folks to connect with you? I think those are the two main spots,
1: right? Yeah, those would be the two main, if, and of course, jury will tell me, and it, once you post it, then she'll take it and send it all to the all the other places, because she's really good at doing that, making sure that she manages that process, so yes. Excellent. Yeah.
0: All right, Leandro. so the very final question that I ask in pretty much every interview, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I would love to know in your words what it means to live a meaningful life.
1: Mm. Living a meaningful life to me is living a life of passion, right? And doing what it is that you were born to do, right? Meaning as like, You were called to planet Earth to do something, right? And finding that something and then be about the business of doing it every day is what gives meaning to life for me. I know I was called to be a coach and a trainer, and and nobody can make me believe otherwise, right? I had a while to discover it, but it's such a meaningful life, and I do it in my sleep. And my daughter's like, Mom, not everybody wants to learn anything. And I can't imagine that. It's like, I can't imagine anybody who would live a life and don't want to learn anything, doesn't want to learn. And so that's what's meaningful to me, really, just living a life that has passion and purpose and that you leverage your power, Hmm. that we don't show out disempowered, right? Hmm. And be okay with the power that you have unapologetically. That's meaningful to me.
0: Beautiful. Well, I, I share your passion for learning, Liangela. It's hard to imagine that there's folks out there who aren't curious about learning. It doesn't have to be about coaching, but like what what are they doing? Learn about something, right? But right
1: We do what your day your time for the love of God.
0: <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you sharing your gifts with with my audience and sharing your passion and it's very evident that you are very clearly living into your purpose and your definition of a meaningful life. It was a joyous, wide-ranging conversation. It covered all of the things that I wanted to talk about with you. I'm really grateful that Mike connected us and just thanks again for spending some time with me, sharing all of your wisdom, insights around the broad depth, breadth of all this incredible work that you're doing.
1: Yeah, thank you. And I, I salute you for the work that you do around making sure that conversations around purpose and heart get to be experienced with you as an interviewer so thank you and I pay homage to you for that passion that you're living around making sure that things are done with heart so thank you for what it is that you do and the gift that you bring because absent a heart what do we have
0: well I appreciate and receive that and to everyone who joined as listener I I really hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening Take good care. I hope that you took notes on this incredible conversation and lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's search for meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well and keep living with purpose. Peace. Bye.